have your copy of God's Word, uh, open up with me to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus 25. If you were an ancient Israelite during the Old Testament, in particular during the time when Israel was out in the wilderness and at Mount Sinai, you would not have your own copy of this Bible. You would not have the New Testament because Jesus and the apostles had not come yet. And you would not have most of the Old Testament. In fact, as they were experiencing life in the wilderness and at Mount Sinai, God was giving His law to them through Moses. But they did not have their own copy of God's Word. They could not wake up early in the morning to go and study God's attributes. They did not have devotional material or a hymn book. They did not have the inspired Word of God in their own copy of it. They couldn't just go read about God. They couldn't just go and study Him if they wanted to know Him more. Instead, if they wanted to know God, they had to rely on their spiritual leaders, like the prophets, like Moses, and the priest, like those from the tribe of Levi. They had to rely on their spiritual leaders, but also they could know about God through the tabernacle. Tabernacle is a a word that many of us have heard if we've been in and around church for a while. It also can be called a sanctuary or a dwelling place. But the tabernacle in the book of Exodus is a moving tent structure that God gives details to Israel about how to build. And it's in this tabernacle, this moving tent, that God will dwell with Israel. His people. God gives very specific instructions to Israel in the book of Exodus about how to build this tabernacle, about its dimensions and its furniture and what it looks like and colors used and how long and tall and all those things because this is supposed to be a picture to the people of Israel of God who dwells in heaven dwelling with them. And every part of this tabernacle is instructive and would teach Israel about God. They didn't have their own copy of the Bible, but if they took a tour of the tabernacle, it would remind them of who God was, of who they were, and of where salvation is found. So this morning, I want to take you on a tour, if you will, of... The tabernacle, not by reading every word of Exodus 25 and 26 and 27 and 30, but instead by reviewing this large chunk of of Scripture from Exodus and trying to put it all together in a way that makes sense. If you've ever done a Bible reading plan, it's likely that when you got to all the specific laws in Exodus 20 through 23, and then you got to Exodus 25 through 31, you just thought... How in the world is this helpful for me, right? And then you got done with it, and then you got to Leviticus, and it was 27 chapters worth of laws, and you thought, where are the stories, right? But because these things, we have to study them and think about, we have to think hard about how they matter. And I want to argue that understanding the tabernacle is really important for your Christian life because there's so much imagery 
that the New Testament picks up on that if you don't understand the tabernacle, it's not going to make sense. In order for us to understand what God has done for us through Jesus, we have to get this tabernacle. So we want to take a tour this morning of this this structure that God is giving architectural plans for here. And I'm going to use some visuals that are images from a study Bible that I have that I have found helpful in trying to study and and find these things. And I hope that they're big enough for you to see. But I want to encourage you before we move on, because I'm not doing what I always do, which is read the text. I'm just going to be referencing it. On the back of your bulletin, there is... Uh, fill in the blanks, and every reference to everything I have is here. And the reason that matters is this. Because if, if you hear a preacher who gets up and says lots of stuff, but is not building what they're saying on the Bible, then you shouldn't listen to them. Because the authority is not in the person preaching, but in the Word of God. So I want to encourage you this week. I'm not reading it right now. I'm reviewing it. But go read this this week on your own. Exodus 25, 26, 27... And thirty, and I, I promise you that, uh, that 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 it will be beneficial to you, especially if you understand what all these different things are for. So we're going to take this tour, and we're going to start from the outside and work our way in. So Lane, can you put that first slide up? This is a, a picture of uh, of this tabernacle, kind of uh, an aerial eye view of, of what's going on. And there's going to be three stops, I guess, on our tour. We're going to work ourselves from the outside in. And the first of those is the outer courtyard. You can see in this picture that there's a a fence that's erected around the outside of the tent that's in the middle. This tabernacle structure, this courtyard, would have been at the center of Israel's camp. All the tribes of Israel were given a specific place around the tabernacle where they would dwell, but they could not go into the court through the outer fence unless they were ceremonially clean. And the book of Leviticus gives lots of details about what that means. And for our purposes this morning, I can't go into all of that. But imagine that you are a a, a Jewish man or woman who is ceremonially clean and you're approaching the tabernacle from the outside. What you see that Exodus 27 tells us about is this outer courtyard is the first thing you would see from the outside. It's an enclosed uh, structure uh, in an enclosed area that's blocked off by a seven and a half foot tall fence. So I'm about six feet tall, so imagine uh, a foot and a half above me. It would be tall enough that you wouldn't be able to see over it. And this fence was made up of silver and bronze pillars that were connected together by fine twisted linen fabric that served as a wall. This courtyard is 150 feet long, so that's half a football field, and 75 feet wide, and all the way around it would be exactly the same except for one section on the south side. You can see down at the uh, bottom, I guess it's bottom right for for me too, uh, on the back, Uh, bottom right there's a section, a 30 foot section that's on the south side, and this is the entrance, the only way that you can get into the outer court. And this entrance was different. This was a screen of blue and purple and red dyed yarns that were woven together in, uh, with fine linen. So what this wall, what this entrance 
would remind Israel constantly is you cannot skip into the presence of God. You cannot make your own rules about worship. I remember when I was pastoring in Indiana, they had a, play, they had a, a little pavilion area out behind the parking lot, and they were talking about maybe putting a playground up. And what happened was, is some of the church members would come during the day, and they would randomly see teenagers hanging out there. And there was a concern somebody could get hurt and stuff like that. So the church started having a conversation about, do we need to put a big fence all the way around our property to keep everyone out? And the pastor and I were both like, I don't think that that's the look we want to go for, right? We don't want to say to the community, you're not welcome here, right? Uh, why not rather, right, uh, side on the, the, the side of saying, hey, come play on our pavilion, right? Uh, so, so we didn't do that. But what we're looking at here, having a fence to, to separate God's presence from the people, this is different than, 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 than that situation, building a fence to keep sinners out. God's presence dwells in the tabernacle, and God is holy. So He gives these specific instructions, and it's actually a grace of God for Him to remind them that you can't just enter my presence willy-nilly, right? You can't just make up your own rules about how you're going to worship me and how you're going to approach me. It's instructive for us today. The Word of God must guide how we worship the Lord and what we value when we gather together to worship. So you're walking up to the south side, the entrance that you see at the bottom right of your screen, and what you will first see when you walk through that curtain is the altar. Go to slide two, Lane. The altar, this is a picture, an up-close picture of this bronze altar. And what this was is a hollow wooden box that was seven and a half feet by four and a half feet, and it was overlaid with bronze, and it has four horns at the top of the corners, and there's grating on the top and the sides of it so that the whole burnt offerings that are offered on top, uh, the, the, the remnants, if you will, what's burned, will go down and be able to clean, be cleaned out. This is where the priest would offer sacrifices to the Lord. This is where when you sinned against God, you would bring an animal to sacrifice. You would identify with this animal by putting your hand on its head, and you would participate in putting this animal to death, and the priest would help you to offer this sacrifice. The the idea going on here is you're acknowledging to God that you are a sinner who's fallen short and who can't be near Him in your sin, but that this animal is dying in your place as your substitute. This was a constant reminder to the people of Israel that their God is holy and that they are sinners. And the only way that God can dwell near them is through the shedding of blood, through atonement being made. Now, if you were a a person that was an Israelite, and you were ceremonially clean, and you went and offered this sacrifice, this is as far as you can go. You could not go any further inward to uh, in the outer court because the, the further that you go in, you have to be a, a priest, basically. You have to be of the tribe of Levi. There's a point at which you cannot go any further. Just like Israel last week we saw was not able to go on Mount Sinai, but their leaders could go up and get a glimpse of God. 
Israel's not allowed the people to go any further. Only their priests who represent them before God can go any further in. So if you went past the altar, go back to the, the main screen, you see the outer court, and then you see the altar, and then the next thing where those men are huddled around that you would approach if you were able to go any further would be the bronze basin. And this bronze basin is detailed in Exodus chapter 30. And what this was used for was for priests to stay ceremonially clean. When they would go into the tent, which we'll get to in just a minute, or if they would go out to the altar to offer sacrifices, they had to be ceremonially clean or they would be struck down by God. Like that's like if you read, I hope you go read this this week, over and over it says, you will die if you do this wrong. Right? There's a lot at stake in what's going on here because dirt represents spiritual pollution. And this water in this bronze basin represents cleanliness and holiness. So these priests would constantly be concerned with, with being clean. They were constantly aware that life and death were at stake if you are a fallen sinner in the presence of God, if you know someone who constantly is carrying around uh, hand sanitizer and washing up and you know just rubbing it all over themselves, or if you've ever seen the Tim Hawkins bit, the, the Christian comedian, where he's hand shaking people's hands at church and after every person he's washing his arms off with this stuff to keep all their nasty germs off of them. Uh, you might be that person. You might know people like that. Imagine how concerned you would be about cleanliness if God's Word said that if you're not clean enough, then you will be struck down because you're near my presence, right? All of a sudden, those OCD tendencies would matter, right? Because your livelihood would be dependent on them. So we've seen, you can go back to the next picture lane, you've seen the outer courtyard, you've seen that you can only enter it if you're ceremonially clean, where the sacrifices are made at the altar, you go in further as a priest, there's a bronze basin that you can wash uh, and, and stay clean on. But then if you keep walking on, you would next approach the tent. And this tent is detailed in Exodus 26. And you can kind of, it zooms in, you can see it a little bit better. And this tent was 45 feet long and 15 feet wide and 15 feet high. And it had a wooden skeletal structure that was overlaid with gold. And it had no solid roof, no front wall. Instead, it was covered by four layers of cloth and animal skins. From outside, it would just look like a big, unimpressive brown tent because all the beautiful stuff was on the inside. There's a principle here that the closer that you get to God, the more precious the material would be that is used. It goes from everything being bronze and silver to now everything's going to start being made of gold. In addition, the closer you get to where God's presence dwells, the more holy you have to be to approach, which is why only the priest can approach. And there will come a point where only one of the priests, the high priest, can go any further. This entrance is on the south side of the tent, and Exodus 26 says that there's a veil, a large, elaborately woven curtain that's hung uh, between five golden pillars. And it has the same colors of blue and purple and red dyed yarns woven together with fine twisted linen. So to walk through this veil would be to take the next step and go to the next location on this tabernacle tour, and that's called 
the holy place. So you can see in this picture that the holy place is going to be that first room you walk in. And then there's another curtain that we'll get to in a minute. And beyond that is called the most holy place or the holy of holies. But in this second stop on our tour inside of the holy place, there's four things that you need to see. Four pieces of furniture that matter and each represent something. The first one is on the right wall. And so when you walk in on the right, you're going to see a table that holds what's called the bread of the presence. Now this small table is overlaid with gold and it has 12 loaves of bread on it. And Exodus 25 details this. The 12 loaves of bread symbolize the 12 tribes of Israel because all the tribes of Israel are a part of this covenant with God. And each Sabbath new bread would be brought into the tabernacle by the priest. And as the priest came in and put these loaves of bread on this table, each one representing a tribe of Israel, they were symbolically offering the people of God, the people of Israel, to the Lord. They're being accepted as a sweet offering to Him. That's what's going on in this table of the bread of presence. And then the bread would be consumed inside the holy place. It would go in, but it would never come out. The priest of God would have holy communion with the Lord on behalf of the people of Israel who they represent. This bread would also be a constant reminder to the priest that God is the sustainer who had provided bread for them in the wilderness through manna to meet their need, their physical need. So on the right wall, you see this table for the bread of the presence. Okay, Go to the next slide, Lane. We're, we're back here. So you see that. If you look really close over on the right, straight across from it, there is what looks like a candelabra. And this is the second item that's on the left wall. It's a golden lampstand, and there's a slide for it. This golden lampstand rests on a base, and it's got a central stem that has six branches, three on each side. And if you look at it, it appears to be, to, to be modeled after a flowering almond tree. And all the details about this are in Exodus 25. This is a lamp that was lit to give light inside of the holy place. If you walked through that first curtain into the holy place, all of a sudden there was no sunlight, there was no light. The only way that you could see what was going on and see where everything was was if there was something lit. So what happened is, is the interior of this tabernacle, it's supposed to represent heaven on earth. There's a curtain with angels that it has a purple background and there's angels that are on it and it's to look like angels are flying around. There's an altar of incense that has smoke coming off of it that's supposed to symbolize God's presence that was atop Mount Sinai that's dwelling with them. But you couldn't see all these things if there's not light. So God says that inside of this holy place, there needs to be a small-looking tree that's emitting light. And this tree is actually a symbol for the tree of life that stood in the Garden of Eden at the beginning of the Bible. You remember the story? Sin, once Adam and Eve rebel against God, they're cast away from God's presence and away from the Garden. Why? 
so that they can't eat the tree of life. Access to God is barred from them because of their sin. But this little lampstand that's lit, that looks like a tree, is a symbol of the tree of life. It's communicating to Israel access to God has been granted again. Israel's spiritually blind, and they need light to enable them to see who God truly is and how to be right with Him. And this light inside of the holy place would help their representatives, the priests, to be able to see and to be near God in their place. This lamp was to burn continuously. Part of the priest's job would be to keep the the candles burning all day long. So when you walk into this holy place, there's a table with bread on the right, and then there's a a golden lampstand on the left, and then straight ahead of you, there is what's called the altar of incense. This wooden altar is detailed in Exodus chapter 30. It was overlaid with gold, about three feet high and one and a half feet wide, and this was to burn incense on morning and evening. In fact, there's specific instructions in Exodus 30 that are given for anointing oil and incense to be made. It had to be the perfect blend of the best spices, and it was used for two purposes. One, as a holy anointing oil. So all the furniture that we've been talking about, all the priests and their garments would be anointed and made holy by this anointing oil. And the incense that was offered on this altar of incense symbolized the prayers of God's people. This was a visual symbol to Israel that their priests were praying to God for them all day long as their intermediators, their their go-betweens between God and them. And then lastly, directly behind this altar of incense, if you go back to the main screen, you can see another tall purple curtain. This one, if you look in close, you can see that there are angels that are woven on it. The only of these curtains that look like this. This is actually the entrance to the inner room, the the inner sanctuary. And there's a large, thick veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place. This veil was made of the same blue and purple and red dyed yarns that were woven together, but this one was embroidered with pictures of angels who are guarding the holy place and who are worshiping God. This would be a reminder to the priest that when they were in the tabernacle, they were standing on holy ground. This is the point where the priest could go no further. Just like the leaders of Israel last week in Exodus 24 could only go so far up the mountain, but only Moses could go all the way into the presence of God to receive the law. In the tabernacle, the priest from the tribe of Levi could only go so close to God. They could only go into the holy place, but only one of them, the high priest, could go through this last veil into the most holy place. And they could only do it one day a year on what was called the Day of Atonement that Leviticus 16 describes. Why? Why could only one person go into this inner sanctuary? Because the most holy place was not just close to where God dwelled. It was where God's presence would come down and dwell with His people. This would be like walking into the glory cloud. So this is the last stop on the tour of 
the tabernacle. There's the outer courtyard. Then you walk in and the priest can go into the holy place. And the last section is called the most holy place. This last room was a 15-foot cube-shaped room. And it contained the Ark of the Covenant that's detailed in Exodus 25. Now, when I was growing up in church, I never heard a sermon about the Ark of the Covenant, but I did watch Indiana Jones. And I remember what happened whenever the the Ark of the Covenant, whenever all the crazy stuff happened in that movie. So if you don't know that reference, we're going to try to explain here what this Ark is all about. This is the one piece of furniture that was always kept hidden from view of the people. This ark was a wooden chest overlaid with gold, almost four feet long and two feet wide and two feet tall. And inside of this was the stone tablets that the Ten Commandments and the Book of the Law were written in. The reason that these people, Israel, could be so near to God is because of this covenant they agreed with. And inside of this Ark of the Covenant was the covenant regulations, the covenant agreement, the covenant laws. We later find out that there's also a jar of manna and Aaron's staff that one time had budded uh, into a small uh, tree. These are the three items that we know of that were held inside of this ark and no one was allowed to touch it because of how holy it is. In 2 Samuel, a man named Uzzah reaches out and touches the ark whenever the priests who were transporting it had slipped. And this man who was trying to help is actually struck down dead for having the audacity to try to help and touch the ark in an uh, unbiblical way. To touch it resulted in death. On top of this ark, you can see in the picture, there's a golden slab, the top of it. And this is called the mercy seat. And on the left and the right of this mercy seat facing inwards are two angels with their wings outstretched in front of them, with their faces looking down in awe of what's in between them. Because it's in between these angels on the top of the mercy seat where God would come down and dwell with His people. It was here that God would speak to Moses once the tabernacle was constructed. It was here that God would come into this holy of holies. Just think about the craziness of this, what we're talking about here. The God who cannot be bound by space. The God who we believe is omnipresent in all places at all times has committed Himself to localizing His presence here amongst His people. Israel would see God's presence come down in a cloud on this tabernacle and see God come and dwell with them. And it would lead them to reverence and fear because they would recognize that this holy God is so close to them. But it would also lead them to assurance because God was with them and God was for them and not against them. This mercy seat at the top of the tabernacle, or at the, I'm sorry, at the top of the Ark of the Covenant, which is translated, the word for mercy seat is translated into Latin as the word propitiatorium, which is where we get the theological word propitiation. Propitiation is a word that we 
should seek to understand, even though it's one you're probably not going to be able to work into a conversation at the water cooler this week at work. Propitiation refers to God's judgment being turned away. God's judgment being absorbed and then turned away from sinners. You see, all those sacrifices that were offered day after day, all year long, out in the outer court, on the altar, all of those would merely cover over Israel's sin. All of those sacrifices pointed to a greater once-a-year sacrifice that the high priest would make for them on the Day of Atonement. It was on that one day of the year that this one Man, the great high priest, would go inside of the Holy of Holies beyond the veil and he would sprinkle the blood on, of a sacrifice onto the mercy seat so that propitiation could be made for the priest and for the people of Israel through the blood of this sacrifice. This mercy seat is where... This sacrifice that turned away God's wrath, that propitiated God's wrath, would be made. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, I get it. This is interesting, right? There's lots of stuff. This is like a trip through a furniture store. All the different pieces of furniture have meaning and significance, and all this stuff matters. I I get it. But I've got to go to work tomorrow and try to be faithful and live on mission and be holy. And I'm trying to figure out how to raise kids and forgive people that have wronged me and be financially wise and stand with Christ and persevere through trials. And Nick, I don't know how the tabernacle and understanding where stuff is in it helps. Remember though, The people of God in the Old Testament didn't have a Bible. They couldn't just go and open it up and see what God called them to do. Instead, this tabernacle was a constant reminder for them of who God is. This was a constant reminder to them that their God is holy, that He cannot be near sin. It was a constant reminder to them that God can only be approached and worshipped on His own terms. That He is this God who will save you. He is a God who will keep you and sustain you in the midst of trial and in the wilderness. But He is also a God who is so holy that He cannot be near you if you're a sinner without sacrificial blood being shed. This was a reminder to Israel constantly that they could not approach God on their own. They needed a holy mediator who would offer sacrifices and who would represent them before God. They were reminded that if they offered sacrifices wrongly, if they went beyond God's boundary markers, if they touched God's footstool, then they would die. Friends, Israel knew that God cares immensely about holiness and obedience. They knew experientially that God is a consuming fire. They would affirm what the author of Hebrews in the New Testament says, that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living and holy God. These are the types of lessons that the tabernacle taught the people of Israel. And in these chapters in Exodus, God's just telling them how to construct it. 
But soon they will actually build this thing. And God will come down and dwell with them in the tabernacle. And these sacrifices, this won't be theory, they will be making it. These priests will be operating as they're commanded in Exodus. And eventually God is going to lead them into the promised land and they're going to take it from the Canaanites and they're going to set up shop there. And in time, a man named Solomon, a king of Israel, is going to come along and he's going to build a house, a permanent structure called the temple for God to dwell in. There's going to come a point where God will not dwell in this moving tent. Instead, His presence will be centrally located in Jerusalem. And that tabernacle is described in the same way that this... I'm sorry, that temple is described in similar ways to this tabernacle. But the problem is, is even when Israel gets in the promised land, even with God's presence dwelling with them, even when the temple is built and the glory cloud hangs over it and His presence dwells amongst them, Israel will break their covenant with God again and again and again and again, over and over, every day, so that eventually God will stand against them. Eventually God will hold them accountable for breaking this covenant. And the way that He holds them accountable is He expels them from the land. They go into exile. The temple that His presence dwelt in will be destroyed. God's judgment will fall on His people because they consistently run after the things of the world and are more influenced by the Canaanites than they are by the Word of God. But the worst part of this judgment is that God's presence will leave them. But there's one more stop on our tabernacle tour. And it's not the outer courtyard that will one day be rebuilt in the New Testament. It's not the holy place or even the holy of holies, the most holy place. But the last stop on this tabernacle tour is the most holy one. Because in God's grace, He will in time build another tabernacle. But it will not be one made with human hands. Instead, the Gospel of John chapter 1 verse 14 says it this way, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Or literally in the original language, The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. God the Son will take on flesh and come and be born as a human, adding a divine nature to Himself so that God will literally be with His people. And Jesus fulfills what all of this tabernacle points forward to. Through His perfect sinless life, Jesus could have entered God's holy presence in the Holy of Holies with no fear of judgment, with no fear of God standing against Him. But instead, what did He do? He laid down His life as the once-for-all perfect sacrifice for His people's sin. Jesus didn't lay down His life on an altar in the tabernacle, but instead He laid down His life on the cross of Calvary. And as He offers up His sinless life as our once-for-all sacrifice, 
God the Father's anger and judgment and wrath against our sin is turned away because it's poured out on His Son instead of poured out on His people. God the Father's perfect justice is upheld. He is just, but God is also the justifier because we can be forgiven, we can be counted not guilty because of Jesus. Jesus makes propitiation for our sin, for the sins of God's people, so that for God's people, because of Him, there's no longer any judgment to face, there's no longer any fear or shame or guilt before a holy God. Because of Jesus, we don't need a priest to go and offer sacrifices for us, or we don't need to go and pray to a priest. We don't need to go and have have a priest represent us before God because Jesus is our great high priest. Jesus offers Himself up as our priest with His own life as our sacrifice. Because of what Jesus has done, He can represent us before God. He's the light of the world to give sight to blind eyes. He's the one who makes a tree of death turn into a tree of life for all who will believe. He is the ultimate bread from heaven, the greatest provision God has ever given for our greatest need. And because of Jesus' work, we can offer prayers to God knowing that we are heard because He intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is the light. He is the bread. He's the perfect high priest. He is the wrath-bearing sacrifice. And when He was hanging on the cross and cried, it is finished. The veil that we've just seen on our tabernacle tour, the veil in the temple that separated us from God was torn in two from top to bottom, representing that access to God has now been granted through the sacrificial offering that has been made by our great high priest. He has granted us access to God so that believers in Him can have confidence that their eternal future will be dwelling with God where there's fullness of joy. And while we wait, He doesn't just say, wait for what's going to happen. Instead, while we wait, God sends His presence to come and dwell in us, in the Holy Spirit, so that our hearts are changed. Friends, God's laws are no longer written down on tablets of stone that are held in a golden box in a holy of holies. But instead, God's laws are written on human hearts that have been transformed by the power of the gospel. And the Holy Spirit empowers us to be holy, to remember Jesus, to rest in the gospel, and to lay our lives down in sacrifice for Him. Because all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. All of the law and the prophets are all pointing forward to Jesus. He gives us access to the Garden of Eden. He gives us access to the cloud atop Sinai. He gives us access to the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and the temple. He gives us access to God in heaven where there's fullness of joy because of Jesus. 
Jesus, we have access to God now and forevermore. Hallelujah. What a Savior. That's the good news. And if you were here last week and you heard all that long part of the sermon about why being with God and being in His presence matters, if you really believe what we talked about last week, that God's presence is where there's fullness of joy, not in the things of this earth. You can get all the stuff in this earth. You can enjoy all the pleasures of this earth, but you can't take them with you. Those are just glimpses, just small taste of the goodness of being with God forever and ever. If you believe that, then you realize the importance of God being with us and of us having confidence we can enter into His presence. In Jesus, we have access to God now and forevermore. The tabernacle matters, not because it is still built on the other side of the world today, because it's not. The tabernacle and understanding it matters not because of what it meant back then, but because of who it pointed forward to all along. God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Friends, if you were an ancient Israelite, you wouldn't have your own copy of the Bible, but you could learn about God through the tabernacle. But if you were an ancient Israelite, you would have an elaborate process to follow to even get close to God. You would have to constantly be ceremonially clean. You would have to offer sacrifices day after day, week after week. You would have to use priests who would be your mediator, your go-between between God and you. And even then, even with all of those things, you would still be kept from fully beholding and belonging to God. But not so for us. We do not need to clean ourselves up before we approach the cross of Jesus Christ because Jesus knows us and while we were still sinners, He died for us. Us. Jesus is our high priest, and He offered His sinless life for us. So when we repent and believe and surrender to Him, Jesus' work cleanses and forgives our hearts, but His work also changes and transforms our heart. He is our priest. He is our sacrifice. He is our forgiveness. He is our future. He is our holiness. He is our power. He is our very life. But God is still holy. And God will still hold us accountable for our lives, for our rebellion. God can still not be in the presence of sin. And the only way for God to not stand against us as our enemy, but instead to adopt us as His children and to become our loving Father, the only way that can happen is through Jesus. And in grace, Jesus has come. Jesus has finished His mission and He beckons us to the cross today. He beckons us to come and lay down our lives. 
Lay down our wills. Lay down our plans. Lay down our selfishness. Lay down our idols. Lay down our version of what we think the good life will be and to repent of our sin and surrender to Him as Lord. He calls us to repent and to believe in what He has done for us because that alone can save us. That alone can forgive and empower us. And if you're here this morning and you know Jesus in this saving and transforming way, then the only thing, the only proper response is to worship Him, to reflect on who He is and what He's done, to reflect on what He's done for you and to live a life overflowing with praise. If you're here this morning and you know Him and you truly have seen Him work in your life and yet you find yourself growing cold towards Him, you find yourself more concerned with the things of this world than with living for His kingdom and His glory and following Him, then repent today and run back to your Lord. Go to the foot of the cross. And if you're here this morning and you've never been born again, If you're here this morning and you've never been forgiven and seen your life transformed, if you've never experienced the Holy Spirit indwelling you, if you've never truly loved God and desired Him and put Him first in your heart, then today can be the day of salvation. His grace is offered, but we must repent and we must believe and we must not delay. Because God is still holy and His judgment still looms. His glorious presence awaits us if we will repent and believe. The sufficient sacrifice has been offered, but we must come to Him in repentance and faith. And my prayer this morning as we close, as we sing, as we reflect, is that we will respond as the Spirit of God leads us. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You this morning for Your grace and Your mercy. God, I pray that You will help us to know more and more of You. I pray, God, that You will help us to remember what You've done and who Jesus is for us. God, I pray that You will open up our eyes to see and to savor You. God, help us to not be bored or apathetic with You and Your Word. Instead, Lord, Help us to see that You are worth more than anything this world has to offer. God, You're the treasure in the field that when we find it, we go and sell everything we have so we can buy the field. God, You are the pearl of great price. God, You are worth laying our lives down. If we have You, we have all that we need. God, I pray that You will help us to live that out and believe that. And God, if we don't know You if we've been making excuses and running after the things of the world and seeking satisfaction elsewhere, and God, we haven't believed in the gospel and run to You in repentance, if we've claimed that we're following You but nothing in our life reveals that that's true, I pray that even now, God, You will help us to come to You just as we are. Help us to not delay and try to pick ourselves up and clean ourselves up first. Help us to come to You because You clean us up. You forgive us. You cleanse us. You transform us. God, we pray that as we sing, as we respond, that You'll help us to respond to You and to think about You and to focus on You. God, whether we're standing or sitting, coming to the front or kneeling where we are, God, help us to sing and help us to remember Jesus 
our Savior, our High Priest, our wrath-bearing sacrifice, and our King. God, we love You and we praise You. Help us to respond this morning. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.